Okay, so the, uh, the subject that we're dealing with is uh, the sins of covetousness and pride. That's the title of my sermon um, as we make our way through um, Micah and chapter 2. But a quick reminder as we uh, continue to bring out this uh, theme of major lessons in the minor prophets. I have mentioned that in coming to Micah, we have now come to one of those um, prophets that spoke during the period when Israel was taken into captivity. So by the time you're beginning the ministry of Micah, both nations, uh, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom were intact. By the time that Micah was finishing his ministry, um, Israel had gone into captivity. Judah was also on the verge of going into captivity because the, the younger sister, so to speak, was not learning <coughs> from the, the older sister. We saw... Uh, when it was the Jude, rather that Micah prophesied, he tells us in the very first verse there, um, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and he, he mentions that these were kings of Judah. So he was primarily speaking in uh, the southern kingdom. Uh, which is so concerning Samaria, which is in the north, and then Jerusalem in the south of the divided nation of Israel at this time. So we went on to look at all that. Then we spent our time in the first chapter, and there we primarily saw the way in which um, Micah was really saying to the people of Israel uh, and Judah that God was threatening to bring judgment on them because of the way in which they were living. And the way in which they were living, which he was threatening, was primarily in terms of uh, their idolatry. And so as you read uh, this section, you can't miss the fact that it is primarily their idolatry that he was concerned about. And then, in the second part of chapter 1 of Micah, his major message is that the response ought to be one of weeping. And that's really what we're dealing with last week. That we ought to, as a people learn to respond to God's word as it convicts us. At least it ought to convict us where we are wrong. And even if we are not weeping copiously in terms of tears coming out of our eyes, surely we ought to be in sorrow that God should be pointing out our sins again and again uh, instead of him praising us or exhorting us to go forward. So that's what we primarily saw uh, in chapter 1. 
in chapter 2, what we have there is uh, that God, through Micah, no longer concentrates on what I would call the vertical relationship that is between uh, the people and God. He now handles the horizontal relationship, and that is the way in which God's people were treating one another, especially the way in which the, the rich and the powerful were abusing those who were under them. And that's something that uh, is crucial for us to appreciate. You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was um, asked what the greatest commandment was. His answer was, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. But notice that he did not stop there. He immediately said, and the second one is like unto the first. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He was not being asked for the second greatest commandment. But Jesus knew that you can't speak about the greatest commandment without talking about the second greatest. You can't just concentrate on the vertical relationship and overlook the horizontal one. The Ten Commandments are exactly the same. You will notice that the first half, depending on the school of thought you are in, the first half deals primarily with God. Some people divide four and six. I tend to divide six and, I mean, five and five. But the first half is about our vertical relationship. And then the second half is about our horizontal relationship. God did not end by only giving commandments that are to do with himself. He also gave commandments to do with one another. So we too must be concerned, as Micah was here, not simply with how we are relating to God, but the way in which we are relating to others, especially where those others are disadvantaged in relationship to ourselves. In other words, if we are older and they are younger, we are providers and they are dependent on us, we are employers, they are employees, we are church leaders, they are ordinary members, and so on and so forth. We are the parents, they are the children. We need to use our power in a way that shows that we are believers, recipients of grace. So as we enter into this chapter, I want you to notice that Micah is essentially showing that the abuse of power betrays the bad spiritual condition in which we are with respect to God. Let me say it again. The abuse of power shows that our relationship with God is sick and that we are 
opening ourselves up to the judgment of God. And thankfully, Micah still ends the chapter on a positive note, talking about God still wanting to save his people. But let's quickly go and look at this chapter. What I want you to notice from, as we make our way through this chapter, is that Micah gives two cycles of condemnation. Two cycles. And each cycle comprises three things. The first is the actual condemnation. Rather, the, he speaks about what the oppressors are doing. That's the first. And then number two, he speaks about the, what God is going to do in response to that. And then thirdly, he addresses the pride that the people have. Okay? So what the oppressors do from the sin of covetousness, how God is going to respond to that, and then number three, what they do because of their pride. So he goes through that twice and then ends with the gospel. Let's quickly go through that together. First of all, what they do. And we see that in verse 1 and verse 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power or in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The point I want you to notice there is, first of all, that it's not that other people are pushing them to do something. Rather, it's that during the day, they observed that the people that were less powerful than them had something that they wanted. And therefore, when they were now on their beds at night, they couldn't sleep. They were tossing it in their minds how they can finally manage to get that which is in the hands of those who are lower than them. Until finally, aha, they've got the solution. When they wake up and they get, as it were, back to the office, it is implementation stage. And in the process, those who are under them lose that which was really theirs. They covered fields and seize them. And brethren, covetousness is a mother of many sins. Many sins. In fact, the way in which I divide the Ten Commandments, and I'm not the only one, by the way, the, the, that's the way the Jews originally divided the Ten Commandments, five and five, is that on the first tablet, the fifth commandment is the one that once you safeguard it, 
you are able to safeguard the other four on top. In other words, if you have respect for your parents, okay, honor your father and your mother. If you have respect for them, if you honor them, then that becomes the stepping stone to honoring God because God you don't see. Your parents teach you about God. And in response to honoring them, you then honor the greater being. So love your, honor your father and your mother is not about loving your neighbor. Your parents are not your neighbors. But then we go to the other one. The last commandment of the last five is you shall not covet. If you safeguard that, if you safeguard your heart, you safeguard all the others on top. Why do you murder? Why do you commit adultery? Why do you steal? Why do you drag your friend's name in the mud? It's because your heart is coveting that which they have. Safeguard the heart and you safeguard everything else on top. So, covetousness is a mother of many sins. In Romans chapter 13, let's quickly peep there. Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul talking about <clears throat> owing no one anything except Romans 13. I'll begin from verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love gives Coveting grabs. So it goes in the opposite direction. Love is a shovel. It digs into the ground and pushes in the direction of others. Lust or covetousness is a hole. It digs into the ground and pulls in its direction. And that's what he now addresses. Verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And finally, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Notice that last one there. You shall not covet. It's right at the bottom. And it is safeguarding all these others. Not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, which come before it. Well, let's go on quickly, back to Micah. So how does God respond to this? This covetousness that is rampant among the powerful. We read in verse 3 down to verse 5 that he's going to punish them. And the way in which he's going to punish them is to take away those very things that they have grabbed from others 
including what they initially had, <clears throat> and it's going to be given away to foreigners. In other words, the Assyrians will come and they'll put all this nonsense to an end because they will get the very things you've been grabbing and then get the very things you already had before you began grabbing and take them away. Let's read it. Verse 3 down to verse 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. In other words, just as they were on their beds, devising how they're going to grab, well, I'm also on my bed. I'm now devising how I will grab from them, from which you cannot remove your necks. In other words, the way I will do it, there's going to be no relief whatsoever. And you shall not walk haughtily, that is, proudly, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and mourn bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changed the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, in other words, a Gentile, he allots our fields. Can you imagine what this God has done? He says, that's the kind of taunting song that you'll be listening to at the end of me doing my work. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. You will have no opportunity once again to go back and say, here is where my portion lies. Nothing like that. Or you have no opportunity for you to go into the temple and say, I'm getting this extra space here. There will be nothing like that. You will be all losers. And as we've already said, while Micah was continuing his preaching ministry this way, disaster finally came upon 10 of the 12 tribes. Assyria came and took them all away. And what Micah is saying here is that it was not just because of idolatry although partly it was because of idolatry, Samaria was worse than Jerusalem, by far. But it was also because of uh, <clears throat> the way in which the powerful were abusing their power. Well, the pride didn't help. Because out of their pride... They were basically now saying, look, stop preaching that nonsense to us. Stop talking to us like that. In fact, the things that you are saying are not going to happen. Let's notice that from verse 6 and verse 7. <clears throat> Do not preach, thus they preach. 
One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. They are arguing back. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? The point there is no, 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 they are not. He's not grown impatient. So this will not happen. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? In other words, the kind of messages that I'm supposed to be giving are supposed to be, rather, you are supposed to be giving, are supposed to be positive messages. Messages of encouragement. Not messages of condemnation. So, stop preaching like that. And sadly, that's often the condition of those who are powerful, those who are advantaged over others. They don't want to hear messages that say to them that they need to be concerned about those who are disadvantaged that they should be actively showing love to them. No. So the moment such messages begin to multiply, the answer is, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. We, we can't be listening to, to such messages all the time. All the time. <clears throat> In actual fact, it's not all the time, but it's the reality that this needs to be addressed. That's the first cycle. Let's hurry on to the second cycle, beginning with verse 8. <clears throat> what I want you to notice is that it's exactly the same, although the pride now will be uh, brought out a little differently. Verse 8 and 9 comes back to what the oppressors do. What the oppressors do. But lately... My people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. So this is now a little more than merely oppression. This is now the, the final stage. It is now actual robbery. So the women here must be understood as uh, widows. Their husbands have died, probably murdered through the same kind of conniving that was there before. And then the individuals get the homes that they were coveting. They push out the widows. Equally, the young children that will be spoken about here would be orphans, exactly the same. They take away that which belongs to the orphans. The only hope that the orphans had, that which they were really, really hoping 
that in a better day they would have splendor, they would have opportunity that is taken away from them. But even before we get to that, notice where it begins. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. They've become so hard-hearted that they've got no sense of human feeling towards others. So here's a person who passes by and he has a rich robe, a rich robe, clothing that immediately says to the people, yo, 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 yo. have you seen? Yo, 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 yo. And maybe he's passing through town and so he sleeps in an inn. They immediately get into uh, gear in order to strip him of that coat. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. So they are assuming I'm among friends as they rent this little inn and then by the time they're waking up in the morning assuming you haven't killed them they don't have their rich Rob. That's a worse level. But inevitably, brethren, sin grows. Sin is never satisfied. It never is. It's like a cancer that continues to eat away in your life. And you go from merely conniving to a state now where all you see in other human beings is what you can get away from them. What you can get away from them. So, those of us who are middle class, upper class, we employ people that work for us. And again, all you are thinking about is how much more you can get out of them. How much more you can get rather than thinking, let me be a blessing to these individuals. Power is on my side. Let me be a blessing to them. Again, the response is that of disaster. Remember, exactly like the first cycle, it's disaster. And the disaster is in verse 10. Verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. In other words, get away from this place quickly because I am bringing disaster. And um, the reason why I am bringing disaster is because this place has become corrupted. It has become ruined. It has become so unclean that it's grievous for me to see what is going on here. I am therefore bringing it to an end. So run away from this place. I am bringing 
destruction. This is the God who exists. This is what he did to the kingdom, the northern kingdom. And as much as we may think it's history, God has not changed. What goes round comes round. Other people may not see that you've become very oppressive, that your covetousness has turned you into a grabber rather than a giver. People may not see, but God does. And God comes round, and the end becomes sorrowful. Sorrowful. Verse 11. The type of preachers they want. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for these people. What today we call motivational speakers. Someone who's always wanting to give a positive message. The year of victory. 2023 is the year of victory. It's always something positive. 2024 will be the year of abundance. Abundance. 2025, the year of glory. It's always something positive. They fill the pews like this. That's the preacher they want to hear. And then when they go out through the doors, they go to live lives that are oppressive, lives that are covetous, lives that are like wild beasts, and it's never addressed, never addressed. They come back, and all you still want to tell them is the next year will be the year of success. Success. Well, basically, that was what false prophets were doing. They were not being faithful to God. They were not being faithful to his word, which doesn't just address the, the vertical, it also addresses the horizontal. And it's crucial, brethren, as we come to church, that our relationships should be speaking of genuine godliness. Genuine godliness. The, those of us who are husbands of our wives, there is a way in which our children listen to our conversations. They do. And if you are an abusive husband, 
an abusive husband. It puts them off. If you call your wife by terrible names, it puts them off. And the result is that they conclude that this Christianity is false. Especially when they come into church and they are seeing the way in which you are worshipping the Lord. They are saying it's all pretense. But also the way in which we as parents handle our children. Exactly the same thing. We can be very abusive. Especially those who are not so much our biological children, but our dependents, who are, as it were, hanging on by a bare thread. We can be extremely abusive to them. So that, again, exactly the same thing. They come along because we've driven them into into the car like God's car. Get in! Calling them all kinds of names. They finally get to church and there you are smiling at everybody else. Very nice smiles. Holy smiles. And again, exactly the same thing. They are put off. But we also employers generally. Even those of us who are not in business, we, we have maids, we have gardeners, we have all kinds of people that work under us. Again, exactly the same thing. We can be very abusive, very abusive. Again, enabling them to think if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. And here's the problem. We somehow bribe our consciences by coming to church, by the vertical relationship. I've worshipped. I've given my tithe and offering. I've sung praises to the Lord. Surely, it must be okay. And yet, on where we are spending six to seven days a week, our relationships are those of abusing power. Abusing power. The Bible is totally opposed to it. Totally opposed to it speaks about those of us who are husbands over wives, that we love them as Christ loves the church. speaks about those of us who are fathers over children, that we should not exasperate them. We shouldn't push them against the wall because of the way we ill-treat them. We shouldn't. And it speaks about those of us who are employers over employees that we should treat them well because we, are, we also have a master who is in heaven. So we should treat them well. We should treat them with honor, genuine honor, because we too 
the master in heaven, and he treats us with honor, genuine honor. We must do the same. But what we're learning from Micah here is that God sees, and God is unhappy where we abuse our power. We abuse it. Instead, what he really wants is that we should use our power, our position, to better those who are below us. Do you know that Sunday school initially was actually a school? It, it wasn't about learning Bible verses and singing choruses. It was actually school. It was about learning alphabet, learning numbers, learning arithmetic, learning a bit of geography, and so on and so forth. All those two subjects that you learn in primary school, that's what Sunday school was. And the way in which it began was simply because messages like this smote the consciences of Christians in the 18th century in what was called the evangelical revival. And they came to the point where they realized that turning the children of the poor into cheap labor was wrong. Because they will never have the opportunity to better themselves. So what they did is they turned their church buildings into schools. And then, after church on Sunday, instead of going home, they would go into the neighborhoods and bring the children of the poor into those same buildings and teach them. And teach them every week. And teach them to improve their lives. That's how the Sunday school movement began. It was Sunday afternoons teaching the children of the poor. And that way they bettered their lives instead of just waiting for them to grow up and become cheap labor. Same thing with what is called the Young Men's Christian Association. Okay, now it's something else. But it was also begun by evangelical Christians in response to these same messages. The factory owners, it was the industrial revolution. So they had just discovered the, the steam engine and so on. So what happened was that young people were leaving the rural areas to come into the city to get jobs. They were paid next to nothing, next to nothing in those factories. In fact, it is said that they were dying like rats. Where was, where's John? He died yesterday. Okay. Uh, Mark, come, come, come. We need you here. Replaced just like that. The Christians, due to messages like this, their consciences were smitten. And they said, no. 
we, we can't just be surviving on cheap labor that's continuing to come in from the rural areas. Let's invest our wealth into these same young lives. So what they did is they began to, to buy up buildings. And those buildings, they turned them into hostels. And they gave one condition to the young people, and it was this. We'll give you free accommodation to live in these hostels on one condition, that you attend Bible study and prayer meeting. That's the only condition. And then, of course, no drinking and no bringing in girls into these premises. Well, if you have to pay or sleep in a ditch, I might as well get into this, even if I'm going to be listening to Bible studies and so on. Many young people got converted. Many. It changed England, and then it was transported to America, and it changed America as well. Now, that's the true Christianity. It is one that doesn't just want to grab and grab and get and get. It is one that says, I'm a child of God. How can I make better the lives of others? And these are the kind of messages that can make us middle-class people quite uncomfortable, quite uncomfortable. Hey, can you just preach the grace of God, you know, salvation by faith alone to get to heaven? and so on. Stop this. It makes us uncomfortable. But brethren, that's something that we should do if Jesus has genuinely changed our hearts. And the reason is that ultimately our Lord is coming. He's not only coming in judgment, but is coming to be glorified among his people. And surely we should show it by our lives. Here is the fruit, Lord. Here, you gave me so much. Look at what I have done with what you gave to me. And that's what verse 12 and verse 13 is all about. Let's quickly get there. Verse 12 to verse 13. The king himself coming. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Notice it's God doing it. And he's saying, yes, I will bring disaster, but I'm also coming to, to bring together my remnant, to bring together those that I plan to bless. He who opens the breach, that is the same one who's saying, I will, I will, I will, goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. 
That's speaking about a final restoration. But a final restoration under the king working with his remnant, bringing about a glorious end out of this mess. And brethren, that's us. That's us. Well, it ought to be us. In the midst of all this mess, may King Jesus be leading a people who are different. Who are a blessing under his kingship. That will say to the world, at least there's hope. There's a remnant. There's hope. It's not all lost. There's hope. And that hope is in the Christian church. May God help us to search our hearts. That if we are still in that bondage of pride and covetousness, of wanting more and more and more and more. May God break through today. May he. May he turn us around so that when we see other people blessed, we rejoice in that. Praise the Lord that God has blessed you rather than entering into some competition with them. Why? Why? Rejoice with them rather than plotting at night how to pull them down. Ah, rejoice with them. If we can't, may we go to Christ that he might deal with our hearts, that he might make us that remnant, that remnant, that will spend and be spent to have a better world than just self-aggrandizement. Through Christ, it can be done. It can. And we can finally appear before him and hear him say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you so much and look at what you've done with it. There's become a better world in your sphere because you lived. Because you lived. It's not just vertical. It's horizontal as well. Let us search our hearts today. Amen.